Good morning, family of God. Let's let's take a moment, a moment for quiet. for quiet prayer. If you would bow your head with me, I just want to be still in God's presence, and each of us in our own hearts can ask God to help us hear His word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the scriptures. We want to be as close to you as possible. So we pray this morning that you would forgive our sins, that you would cleanse us of anything that would hinder our relationship with you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher now. Help us to hear the word of God, to remember, to understand, to trust your word. And that today and and over the next several weeks of the Advent and Christmas season, that you would be renewing our hope and deepening our relationship with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to immediately ask you to give your attention to verse 4 of Isaiah 64. I love this verse. And if you don't already love this verse, I pray that by the time you leave today, you love this verse. Isaiah 64, verse 4, said this, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This verse speaks about the absolute uniqueness of God, the holiness of God. He is set apart. There is no one else like God. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. There's no one else like him. And God is set apart. He's different and unique in many ways. He alone is the creator. Everything else Is a creature. He alone is eternal. Everything else has a beginning. God alone is infinite in his power and in his wisdom. People and angels can be good and loving and wise, but God is love. God is goodness. God is wisdom. He's the infinite source of all existence. And of all good things. There's no one like God. But this text is emphasizing God's uniqueness in a particular way. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. I want to invite you to think about that phrase. God acts for those Who wait for him. First of all, God acts. Everybody say God acts. He is not a passive God. He is not a distant God. 
When America was founded, a lot of people talked about God, but they were deists, meaning they thought God created the world and he wound it up like a well-made watch that he could just leave it alone and set it going and go ticking forever. So all the laws of nature come from God, but he's distant. He's not involved in the day-to-day life of the world, but that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God revealed in Jesus Christ. This is a God who is actively at work in the world. He's actively at work in human affairs. God acts. Not only does it say he acts, it says he acts for those. He's acting for people. This is a God who intervenes in history with love and mercy and justice and grace to help and set things right. I'm already getting excited. Aren't you glad God acts for his people? God intervenes when we're in trouble to help us. God acted in Jesus Christ to save us from sin, Satan, and death. In the Old Testament, we read of God acting to deliver his people from slavery. God acting over and again to save people from suffering. In your own life, many of you can testify. You have prayed and God has acted. He is an active God, but it says something very specific here. It says he is a God who acts for those who wait for him. Key phrase today and for the next few weeks is going to be the phrase, wait for the Lord. So everybody say, wait for the Lord. We'll talk more about what that means. But for now, I just want to read you a little description from the Old Testament scholar J. Alec Motyer. He devoted much of his life to studying Isaiah and writing about Isaiah and commenting on the word wait. In this verse, he gave this little description. Wait here means to exercise a patient Confident, expectant faith in God. It means to exercise a patient, confident, expectant faith. So it's about faith. It's about trust, trusting God. But it's not just about trust. It's about trust under trial. It's about trusting God when it's hard to trust God. It's about trusting God. When it feels like God isn't doing the stuff he said he was going to do. And we can be honest in church. As Christian folks, we confess God is faithful. He always keeps his word. Amen. But we can also be honest that sometimes it feels like he's not keeping his word. The scriptures are filled with. The saints of old bearing witness to that reality. How long, O Lord, until you keep your promises? The Psalms cry. So waiting for the Lord is not just about trust. It's about trust under trial. It's about faith when it's hard. It's about patient faith. When you feel like you're going through long periods of time where God feels absent. It's about trusting God when all the people who are supposed to represent God and to speak in God's name are acting in very ungodlike ways and you're hurt. Waiting for God is about coming to God with all of our wounds not yet healed. With all of our problems not yet solved, with all of our questions not yet answered, with all of our doubts not yet resolved and saying, I still trust you. It's about trust under trial. It's exercising a patient faith when it's hard to trust God, but it's still a confident, expectant faith. And it says here. That God acts 
for those who wait for him. I like the alliteration in the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. It says, God works for those who wait for him. God works for those who wait. And I was just reflecting this week on the fact that several times people have told me their favorite verse in the Bible is the one that says, God helps those who help themselves. Now, I just got to tell you, that is not in the Bible. Okay? It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. That's a little American proverb, cliche. I don't know if it started here. I'm not sure where it started. Now, there is a little bit of truth in it, right? Because sometimes it's like, I wish I wasn't so greedy. God, when are you going to save me from being greedy? And then you don't even try not to be greedy, right? There's a little bit of truth in it. That as we, by faith, put our faith into action, we experience God's grace at work in our lives. But that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, um, could also be very misleading. Because guess what? The Bible teaches all of us We're slaves to sin, and we could not help ourselves out of that condition. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has come near to us in Jesus to help those who never could have helped themselves. Or another way to say that is God works for those who wait. And I was just thinking, though there is a little bit of truth in the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. What the Bible says here in Isaiah 64, 4 is so much better news. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who acts for people who wait for him? Who just say, we can't, we can't save ourselves. We can't save the world. But we're still trusting in you. He acts with grace, mercy, justice, and love in his perfect timing for those who keep trusting him when their faith is under trial for a long period of time. He has done that throughout history. And he will continue to do it. The God who has been faithful in the past will be faithful in the future. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Means there's lots of religions in the world and they may all say some true things. But the reason we're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who has become who has come near to us in Jesus Christ is because he's real And he really acts. He really works for those who wait for him. Isaiah 64, 4. I love this verse. Now, before we we go on, I'll just say, by the way, you've already got the main point of the sermon. So if I lose you for the rest of this time, just hold on to that and take it home with you. Okay. God works for those who wait for him. But before we go on and look at some of the rest of this text, I want to step back for just a second. Why are we reading Isaiah 64 and Psalm 80? Today, if you've been with us for the last few months, you know, we've been in the middle of studying the gospel of Luke, but we stopped, we paused. We're not reading Luke today. Why are we reading these verses? And it's because today is the first Sunday of Advent. That's why the Madewells came and lit this candle. And some of you are very familiar with the the season of Advent, but others may not be as familiar. So I just want to talk about for a second to help us frame what we're thinking about as we think about these texts of Scripture. I introduced the theme a little bit last week, but let's say it again. Everybody say Advent. Advent is a season of the Christian liturgical calendar. And the word liturgical is a big word that just means having to do with worship. So when we say the Christian liturgical calendar, we mean Christians for many centuries and in many parts of the world have made up a calendar, a schedule, a rhythm to our worshiping life that punctuates the year. And some Christian churches will hold very closely to the details of that calendar all throughout the year. 
Almost all Christian churches will hold at least to two dates. What's the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Somebody can yell that. December 25th, Christmas, that's right. We have no idea when he was born, but Christians all over the world celebrate it on that day. And Easter, there's some Sunday. You have to know a formula to calculate which Sunday it is. But it's in the spring, and there's a Sunday that we all celebrate Easter. Those are two of the three high points of the Christian worshiping calendar. And we've got to say, hey, does the Bible say you've got to keep the liturgical calendar? No, it doesn't. So it, it's fine for churches that don't, don't want to hold too closely to it. We uh, don't always hold closely to it. But we try to, at certain times of that year, lock in with what the church throughout the world is doing in its rhythm of worship. There are three high points in that calendar, okay? Christmas, when God came to be with us in Jesus Christ. Easter, when we celebrate that Jesus, who died for our sins, rose from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And Pentecost, when you celebrate that the Holy Spirit was poured out by Jesus on his church. Those are the high days. When we remember those moments, we throw a really big party, because those are great things that happened in the Gospels that uh, we want to remember and have times to focus on those every year. Well, Advent is a season of the Christian liturgical calendar, which is three to four weeks, depending on how it falls, leading up to Christmas. By the way, I'll just say here, I keep trying to make a plug that American evangelicals don't let our Christmas party last long enough, okay? Christmas is just the first day of Christmas, December 25th is. You know the song. It's not just the song, though. How many days are there? Twelve. That means you're supposed to keep partying to at least January 5th. And then you can party for Epiphany on January 6th if you want to, okay? But, uh, by the way, I've been learning this year about how Christians um, in parts of the world when, where Christianity had really deeply shaped the culture, they would have a big party on the evening of January 5th called a Twelfth Night Party. And I feel like we should have one of those. So if, if you're a party planner and you feel like a sense of calling from God to throw a big party on January 5th, come talk to me. We need to make this happen, okay? Um, but we're supposed to party for all, 12 whole days. Lots of food, lots of celebration. It's okay if you don't want to party. I'm just telling you it's a good tradition. It's fun. And uh, But the three to four weeks leading up to it are what we call Advent. And to understand Advent season, you need to understand this is not just another word for Christmas. Advent is one of the two main penitential seasons of the Christian calendar. Meaning it's a season of repentance and spiritual preparation. It's also the beginning of the Christian calendar. So in terms of Christian worship throughout the ages and throughout the nations, today is New Year's Day. It's the beginning of the the worshiping year. And during this season of Advent, Christians think about both of the two Advents of Jesus. The word Advent means arrival. And the Son of God arrived on the earth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He came once. To live a perfect life, to teach us the ways of God, to die on the cross for our sins, and to ascend to heaven. I'm sorry, to rise from the grave and to ascend to heaven. And he's coming a second time. There's going to be a second Advent where Jesus comes back again to set everything right. And at Advent, we think about both of those Advents. Everybody say Advent one more time. We're thinking about both of those. And the, the scriptures that Christians tend to read during this time of Advent are drawing on the ancient experience of Israel in exile, praying for the Savior to come. That's what we just sung about. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. We're remembering Israel in exile, praying for God to send the Savior. Those hopes and prayers were fulfilled 
with the first advent of Jesus. And as we remember that experience, we're also trying to learn from it to look forward to the second advent of Jesus to hope and pray for Jesus to return again. So the main phrases that sort of characterize the Advent season are these two phrases. Everybody say, hope in God. Everybody say, wait for the Lord. Those, those experiences of hope and waiting are emotionally complex experiences, aren't they? It is an experience of joy because we know God has come and he's coming again. But it can also be about lament because we're waiting for promises that have not yet been fulfilled. One of the good things about Advent is that if you're trying to get into the Christmas season and you think you're supposed to feel all happy, but your family's a mess and your soul is a mess and you got seasonal, what do you call that disorder where you get, what's it called? Somebody can tell. This, okay, y'all know what I'm saying. Affective disorder. I think that's what it is. It's dark and it's cold and we all get gloomy and depressed, right? So if you've got all that going on and you feel like I'm not feeling that happy, Advent is actually validating that experience. Saying hope and joy and sorrow and pain can all go together as we put our faith in Christ. It's an emotionally complex experience and hoping and waiting for God are purifying experiences. Every year when we get to Advent, I think about 1 John chapter 3, which talks to us about looking forward to the second coming of Jesus and then says in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you put your hope in Jesus, that means you're fighting against some of the false hopes that sometimes that sometimes we trust in to save us. Sometimes we think money is going to save us, don't we? Sometimes we think the perfect relationship is going to save us. We're just looking for When this happens, I'll be happy. When this happens, I'll be okay. And Advent is saying, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed when Jesus comes. It's a purifying thing. Now, I've taken some time, about half of my sermon time actually, to talk about this. Because I'm trying to frame for us what we're reading. Today and over the coming weeks, we're going to be reading from Isaiah and from Psalms. And in the Advent Christmas Epiphany weeks, you're going to hear from a lot of different speakers. I think Jared's up next week. Nate Estrada is going to share with us. Chauncey's going to share. We got Paul Sanchez back on the calendar. So it's going to be fun to hear lots of people. Yeah, y'all can get excited about any, all of those, actually. That'd be great. But uh, I'm excited to hear God's word from a lot of our brothers. But for the next few weeks, we're thinking about waiting. We're thinking about hoping. So with that in mind, okay, let's come back to the text. But that long half of a sermon parenthesis is over now. And let's come back to Isaiah 64, and we're going to have to move kind of quick now. But I encourage you to study these passages and meditate on them throughout the week. What's happening in Isaiah 64? Well, we can say really briefly, Isaiah 64 is a prayer for mercy. It's a prayer for mercy coming from people who are suffering. And specifically, the prophet is speaking from the perspective of Israel and exile. Some of you will know in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the prophet is in various ways calling people to repentance. He's saying God loves you, but you're worshiping false gods. You're devoting your life to the wrong things. You're oppressing people. You're committing injustice. And if this continues, God's going to discipline you. But then starting in chapter 40, the perspective shifts. And from that point, Isaiah is... uh, The book is talking to us from the perspective of the children of Israel in exile... 
having been punished and wondering if there's still any hope. And the answer is yes, there's hope because God is faithful. And here in chapter 64, they're, they, they've been, the, the children of Israel are speaking from the, the prophet speaking from the perspective of the children of Israel. They've been conquered by the Assyrians. They've been conquered by the Babylonians. They've been carried off into exile. They're being oppressed. And among other things, they're asking God to save them from pagan nations that are oppressing him. So if you look at verse one, hear the plea for mercy. Save us from our enemies. It says, God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Split open the sky. Send down your angel forces or you coming down, leading your army to save us from our Babylonian oppressors. That's what the prayer is. Rim the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. When fire is there. Water or brushwood reacts. And when God comes, creation reacts. The mountains tremble. So the prayer is, God, come, make your presence known among us. Act. We're waiting on you. And it feels like you haven't been acting for a long time. So we're asking you to work for us. He says, make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations may tremble at your presence. Isaiah ultimately is going to hold forth the hope that all the nations are going to turn from evil and come worship the true God with his people. But here it's at least saying these pagans who dishonor you and mock us and oppress us need to know that we are the people of God and you're the Lord. Come save us. Though God's people are being oppressed, it is important to notice they are not innocent victims and they know it. It's possible to be oppressed and guilty at the same time. And much of this is saying we know that we actually deserve the situation that we're in. For example, look, look down to the middle of verse five. The prophet says, behold, you were angry and we sinned. We sinned in our sins. We have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Do you hear the wrestling there? We've done too much evil. Is there any hope for us? Maybe you felt that way sometimes. We've done too much evil. We've sinned too much. Could God still forgive me? Could God love me after I've been unfaithful? I've wandered. I've drifted for a long time. If I try to get my life back, if I try to come back to church, is he going to reject me? Is he going to accept me now? We've been in our sins for a long time. And shall we be saved? He goes on to say, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even our good stuff for the remnant in exile that's trying to honor God, even our good stuff is tainted. We've got all kinds of sin inside of us and mixed motives. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. That's the saddest phrase in this passage to me. You have hidden your face from us and made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. That's a powerful picture in the hand of our iniquities. We were in your hands, O God, and you pleaded with us to turn from sin to trust in you. But we refuse. We rebel. So the sweet fellowship with you that we enjoyed has now been disrupted. You wanted to bless us, but now that relationship is broken. We feel like you're. 
face is hidden from us. And instead of being in your hands, we're in the hands of our sins. And we're dying. We're melting. Skipping down to verse nine. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. So these are people who are suffering and they're praying for mercy. They're being oppressed by their enemies, but they know it's because of their own sin. The prayer is a prayer for forgiveness and spiritual renewal, as well as a prayer for deliverance. And though you hear the wrestling, the wondering, will God still accept me after all this sin? Ultimately, there is a confidence that the answer will be yes, because of the character and the heart of God. At the heart of this prayer is a deep knowledge of who God is. You see it throughout the prayer, but look especially at verse 8. It says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. You are the Lord. That, that's translating the word Yahweh. The name that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. God said, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. The word Yahweh means the Lord is eternal. He's unchanging. He's free. He's powerful. And yet the name Yahweh evokes God's history of acting for his people. Because right after he spoke that name for Moses, he rended the heavens and came down and overcame the power of Pharaoh in Egypt and brought his people out of slavery into freedom. So that name Yahweh is evoking the whole history of God's covenant faithfulness. And then he says, you are our father. In Luke's gospel recently, we've been emphasizing, seeing how Jesus emphasizes that if we trust in Christ, we're adopted into God's family. But this is, that was a notion that's already there in the Old Testament. He is a father to his people. We're his children, which means even when we are bad kids, even when we behave badly, even when we rebel, his love for us will not cease. He is a tender father. He's a kind father. He's a faithful father. He's a protecting father. And this powerful image, we are clay, you are the potter. You made us. Israel wouldn't even exist as a nation if God hadn't chosen them and called them to himself. And implicit here is the prayer. Through our rebellion, we have become malformed, but we're asking you to reform us. An image the prophet Jeremiah will make explicit. God, we're the clay. Form us to be the people you want us to be. Because... God is Yahweh because he's father, because he's the potter who forms and reforms and transforms his people. We can wait for the Lord with confidence. So now let's look back where we started. Let's put that verse where we started in its context. Let's read what comes before and after it as well. Look again at verse three. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. What does that mean? It's recalling the history of Israel. Moments like the Exodus, but also many other moments when God's people were struggling, they were having a hard time, they were beginning to lose faith, but they trusted in God. And then all of a sudden God acted in a way that totally surprised them. He rented the heavens. He came down. The, the mountains quaked. You have been faithful in the past. You have acted. And because you've been faithful in the past, now we have confidence in the present. 
From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. See, he's contrasting the history of God's dealings with his people in which God has faithfully acted with all the false gods of the world that have never done that for their people. There's no God like the Lord who has been so faithful. There's no God besides you who acts, who works for those who wait for him. And then if you're wondering, what does it mean to wait for the Lord? I already gave you a little definition. Patient, confident, expectant faith in God. But we get further description of what it can look like in verse five. Because parallel to the phrase, those who wait for them, you act for those who wait for you, is what we read in verse five. You meet him. That's a parallel phrase. You act for people. You meet people to help them. Who do you meet? You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. It's interesting here. Waiting is not passive. Waiting means even in the pain and the sorrow of deferred promises, deferred fulfillment. There is joy and there is actively remembering and depending on God. Now, sometimes when you wait, there's not a whole lot you can do besides prayer, but that is active. Some of you know there's sometimes when you can't do anything else but pray and remember God and it takes a lot of effort. Amen. You have to act to do it. I'm thinking about three of our church members who have been, we've, some of you have also visited in the hospital in these last couple of weeks. Sickness is one of those things that can lay you out where whatever you were going to do for God, suddenly you can't do for God. And God hopes those who help themselves is no comfort at all. But God acts for those who wait for them can then become very meaningful. One of those brothers who a number of us have visited who said he was going to watch. He's probably watching the live stream right now. Laid up in his hospital bed unexpectedly this week. I was encouraged by his faith, the way he was being a witness for Christ with EMTs taking care of him after a bad car accident. Um, but when you're, late, when you're laid out like that, you could start to wrestle with, what am I supposed to do here? What am I supposed to do here? And what it's saying is, trusting God, remembering God, turning your attention back to God, rejecting the lies in your heart and the lies in the culture and the lies of the devil in order to hold fast to the truth of God. Is work. <laughs> it's work. It's waiting for the Lord. It's working righteousness. And. And those situations in life where we're able to be a little more active. The work that we do of sharing the gospel, of trying to disciple the next generation of loving kids, of trying to do justice and correct oppression and. Trying to be agents of mercy for those who are hurting. All that work can be very exhausting and we could do it our whole lives. And when we're done, the world is still full of problems. Have you noticed that? So all that work, how can you do it with joy? If we think what we're doing is solving all the problems of the world, we will get discouraged. Our in, let, let me put it this way. Our encouragement will be indirectly proportional 
to our naivete. Did I say that backwards? I got my proportion messed up. <laughs> the more naive we are, the more encouraged we'll be. The more in touch with reality we are, the less encouraged we'll be if we think what we're trying to do is solve the world's problem. Because we could start young and idealistic. We're going to solve all the problems. We'll start with South OKC, then go on to the rest of the world, right? And then a few years later, if that's how you're thinking, you're going to be really beat up and discouraged. But if what you... Th- you're doing is recognizing only God can save the world, but he has promised to work through his people and to work for his people so that we want to stay active. We want to stay engaged in the work. But even when life lays us up and all we can do is lay on our back and trust God, we know he's still working and he will fulfill his promises. If that's the way you think, now you can have joy. Now you can have joy in the work. Those watching the live stream from the hospital bed, God's working for you. We love you. Where's the camera? There it is right there. We remember you. God remembers you too. I don't really have time to talk about what's in Psalm 80. But before we wrap up, let me just briefly show you a few connections. You could trace them out this week as you meditate. Both of these psalms are prayers for mercy from people who are suffering. Psalm 80 also is about that. And in Psalm 80, there's a deep confidence in the character of God. Just look at verse 1 real quick. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. You are a glorious God, enthroned on heavenly, mysterious creatures called cherubim, Commanding thousands, millions, billions, trillions of angels. You have all power and you're a shepherd for your people. You're the father. We're your children. You're the potter. We're the clay. You're the shepherd. We're the sheep. That means we get stuck in pits. We get attacked by wolves. But you pull us out of the pit. You fight off the wolf. We trust you, God. And over and over through the psalm. There's a cry, act to save us. Look at verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Look at verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. God, act for us. Help us. This phrase, let your face shine on us, is a beautiful phrase. And it's the exact opposite of God hiding his face from us. How long will you hide your face from us, says Isaiah. And the psalmist cries out, Lord, let your face shine on us. It means smile on us, God. Look on us with kindness. Restore the fellowship we had with you, the relationship, the experience of intimacy with you. We want to know you like that. We want to be close to you. If our sins have pulled us far away, bring us back close. And bless us, forgive us, restore us, revive us, and help us. And here's one beautiful thing Psalm 80 adds to the picture. This psalm teaches that God will save his people by putting his hand on the man of his right hand. Look at Psalm 80. We're almost done. But look at verse 17 and 18. When God tears open the sky to come down and save us, what's he going to do? How's he going to do that? But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life 
And we will call upon your name. When will we be filled with life and be faithful to God and not turn away from him? When he puts his man on a, his hand on the man of his right hand. Well, what does that mean? The man of your right hand refers to God's chosen king. And the phraseology here is, is almost always associated with the Davidic king. The heir of David, King David. The psalmist is expressing hope that God will strengthen the Davidic king and thus strengthen and save his people, giving them life. We don't know everything about the context of Psalm 80. It mentions the northern tribes in the opening verses, but then it's closely connected to Jerusalem and to the hope of David. So it's likely that in the wake of the invasion of the Assyrians, God's people in Jerusalem wrote this psalm saying, God strengthen heir of David on the throne in Jerusalem to save us and the separated tribes from our enemies. But then when they were in exile, the children of Israel would read that phrase and think, well, there is no Davidic son on the throne, but God promised there always would be. And they started looking forward. Lord, you're going to send another king from the line of David to save us. And there's a lot of ways of talking about him, but they referred to him as the anointed one, which is to say the Messiah. Everybody say Messiah. Or the Christ. What I'm trying to say is that verse 17 is ultimately about Jesus. It's about Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that we finally find the God who acts for those who wait for him. Israel could not save themselves from the Romans or from their own sins. So they cried out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We cannot save ourselves from our sins. And yet God rended the heavens and came down and was born in a manger. A little vulnerable baby who is at the same time God, the God man. And he grew up and he went to the cross. He didn't save us by flexing his power to destroy the Romans or the Babylonians. He saved us by humbling himself in weakness to die on the cross for our sins. And then rising from the grave so that anyone who has the humility to come to Jesus and say, I cannot save myself. I cannot help myself. Only you can save me. And I'm going to trust you even when my trust is under trial. I'm going to hold to you even when it's hard. That person will find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came once. There was a first advent and there's a second advent. He's going to come again. When he comes again, he's going to set all things right. And the invitation for us today is this. Everybody say, hope in Christ. Wait for the Lord. In this season, our prayer is, God, purify me. Purify me. As I get ready to celebrate Christmas and as I anticipate the second coming of Jesus, help me to not put my hope in myself as if I could save myself or save the world. Help me to not put myself in some like political power. We're about to have a crazy election year, I anticipate. Don't put your hope in a political savior. Help me not to put my hope in whatever experience or substance or relationship that I think will gratify my desires and give me joy. Help me to hope in Jesus and purify me from everything that distracts me because I want to be as close to Jesus Christ as possible. And as we do that, we can do it with confidence because we worship a God who acts 
for those who wait for him. I want to invite you to stand. And I'm going to say a prayer for you as we get ready to sing one more song. But first, I'll just invite you to bow your head and be silent for a moment. And I'm just going to pray that in this moment, the Holy Spirit will speak to us. In Advent, as we're learning to wait for the Lord and hope in Christ, there may be some sins that are distracting us from that hope. There may be some false hopes that we need to turn away from in order to turn back to Jesus. I'm just going to pray in this moment of silence that the Holy Spirit will speak to us about God's love for us and call us back to refocus our hopes in that right place. praise you for being a God who works for those who wait for you. Thank you for being a God who hears the prayers of desperate people. A God who saves sinners. A good shepherd who came near to us in Jesus, laying down his life for the sheep. loving Father who doesn't reject us. And Lord, in this morning, we, 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 we want to acknowledge we are the clay, you are the potter. Reform our hearts, transform our souls, heal us. Please sort out our priorities, Lord God. Many of us have many sorrows and many burdens that we're carrying in this time, both in this room and those watching the live stream. But you are a God who loves us, who heals, who works for those who wait for you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. And even as we lament and deal with the pain in our lives, we thank you for the joy that we have because we know that in Christ our hope is sure. As we worship you right now, I pray that you would be rekindling that joy. This Advent season would be a season in which even in the midst of whatever else is going on, we we do experience the joy of knowing God will keep his promises. And when our faith wavers, your love does not. So we thank you for that and ask for your Holy Spirit to continue to minister to us as we respond to your word in Christ's name.